bad luck. To talk about a no-hitter. It's bad luck for the pitcher. Yes. We don't work for the pitcher. That puts us in a hell of a dilemma. Actually, I'm fine. In three, two, one. Good evening, everybody from New York City. I'm Dan Rydell alongside Casey McCall. Those stories plus... Welcome to episode two of Those Stories Plus. I'm Adam Amin. My name is Steve Samina, and we're here to discuss today episode two of Sports Night, titled The Apology. This is an exciting one because this is where we really get a true look into Dan Rydell as a human being, as a lot of different things. It's an excellent episode. We're excited to discuss it. And of course, you can now follow us on Twitter at Those Stories Pod. You can follow us on Instagram at those stories pod ironically enough <laughs> you can email us at wait for it those stories pod at gmail.com and you'll also be able to visit our website website at those stories and you can also follow steve and i on twitter i'm adam amin a-d-a-m-a-m-i-n and I can be found at at s-j-c-i-m although don't expect a whole lot of activity <laughs> me from there so the, the first thing I have to get off my chest about this episode. Let's hear it. So Jeremy is discussing with Dana about a no-hitter that's currently going on in Cleveland. Yes. And for those who do not know, uh, I've established that I am a play-by-play announcer for ESPN. And among the several sports that I'm lucky enough to call, Major League Baseball is one of them. And I have a very strict philosophy about this because Jeremy is saying you shouldn't mention a no-hitter, and there's a great back and forth between Dana and Jeremy about this very subject. She says, it's bad luck for the pitcher. Says, we don't work for the pitcher. <laughs> right. So, I, I, as soon as I saw this episode, it took me immediately to what, like, I, we had to discuss this philosophy, because it's so, ha- this is one of the most argued points between play-by-play announcers with each other, is it okay for you to say no-hitter? And from your perspective, as a fan who watches a ton of baseball, what is your perspective on this? I think absolutely you have to, because you got to get you want eyeballs on this first of all, and to agree with Dana, you, it's not your job to bring the pitcher good luck. You're reporting on it. You're supposed to be looking from the outside. I remember like playing high school baseball, and if someone had their inning and a half of a no hitter, you'd kind of like already be you know you were excited to not talk to them. Sure. <laughs> like, but as a as an person watching from the outside like it brings excitement and and stakes to that game in a way that how could you not mention it i feel like it has to be mentioned i think it's thank you for saying it because uh, i wish all fans had the same perspective as you because uh i've gotten to call a no hitter into the seventh inning of a major league baseball game adam uh, actually it was mike fires of the milwaukee brewers was throwing a no hitter and it was broken up by adam wainwright who then pitched a shutout in that game ironically enough for the cardinals that was two years ago but I've gotten tweets from fans during Major League Baseball games that I'm calling saying, like, like, why are you mentioning a no-hitter? Like, you shouldn't be talking about this. My personal philosophy is what you just said. It's my job to report that there is a no-hitter going on. I typically give it about five full innings before I start even using the term no-hitter or at the very... Like, I'll say during the first four innings... You know, it hasn't a lot of hit in his first four or right. whatever it may be. And and I may not even say the words no hitter together until we really get into the deep innings, like the seventh or the eighth inning, and certainly in the ninth. But I, I, I have to do my job, especially on the radio. And I do baseball games on the radio and on TV. Your job is to make sure that the uh, people watching the game know that there's a no hitter going oh, yeah. on. And it's easier to do on TV because graphics 
right. often come up and will say, uh, recently... Every Mad- half inning, it pops up and shows sure. that zero, right. Recently, Madison Bumgarner was throwing a no-hitter on Sunday Night Baseball, and on top of the score graphic, it said, you know, no hits allowed through seven and a third, whatever it may have been. On the radio, it is, it is essential that you tell people what is going on. You don't have to hammer it every single pitch, but you have to let them know... Adam Wainwright is not allowed to hit through seven innings. Wainwright's got a no-hitter through seven and two-thirds. He's three outs away from finishing off a no-hitter. You have to do your job. Whether you can, you can be more explicit, you can be less explicit, but you have to at least say it in some capacity so that Joe Blow driving down you know, I-90 knows, hey, no-hitter's going on, maybe right. I should listen. I think that's an interesting point, too, that it's Jeremy, who's new to the show at this point, and who, for the most part, is that that guy who would be tweeting at you, being like, what are you doing? Talking to Dana, who's kind of, you know, she's the veteran. She's like, I don't, I, I don't, don't care. care. Yeah, I'm a bro- I know what I'm doing. I'm a broadcaster. I'm a producer. I'm ready to do so, this. So I had to, I had right. to, had to, before we got to anything else, I had to make very explicit my philosophy on this as a guy who's called minor yes. league and major league baseball for the last seven years of my life. I had to get that off my chest. I think the, the genesis of that superstition is that you you don't want to say it to the pitcher to get into oh, the no, pitcher's and head. Of course, of and if course. you're in the dugout, obviously. If you're in the dugout, absolutely. Right. Don't talk to your guy. Right. Let him alone. That's You You are in the He's heat of that moment. He's not watching the game on TV hearing you mention it and being like, what? Yeah. Right. So I, not, I, haven't, I haven't a lot of hit. You think these guys don't know if they've, they haven't a lot of hit through the first five, six, seven innings of a game. So I'm all for I'm all for the superstition. If you're in the dugout, right. you're the manager, you're a coach, you do not talk about it. You don't go after it. But our job as reporters and broadcasters is to tell you what is happening in a game. And I am very adamant about that. And I'll tell you this, for those baseball fans out there and, and sports fans in general who know Vin Scully, if it's okay for Vin Scully to say <laughs> no hitter in perfect game during the game, then it's okay for the rest of us. Perfect. Well, let's dive into it. We can get right into talking about this. Toby Bennett is his name. Uh, the Apology, <laughs> this originally aired on September 29th, 1998. Again, written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by his partner, Tommy Shalami. Our synopsis here is that the network is upset when a magazine quotes Dan as saying that he favors the decriminalization of marijuana. When he's forced to give an on-air apology, he dedicates it to his little brother who died in a car accident while intoxicated. So there's our cold open. We start going right off the bat in the office, Dan and Casey's office. Dan's working, or Dan's nervous and pacing nervous about the Esquire piece that's going to be coming out. Um, and Natalie's trying to get the two of them into the studio. It's almost showtime. So there's also the funny, we mentioned this earlier today on our own off mic, the funny kind of recurring bit throughout this episode of Dan feeling like he's being stalked by one of the girls from the morning <laughs> fitness show. That's going to come up a couple of times. And they can't quite get her name right. The stalker has a name? Yeah, Mandy. I thought it was Sandy. Randy. Mandy. Madeline. This is also, of course, I think the first time the phrase those stories plus is actually mentioned. I don't believe they said it yeah, in they the did pilot. Not, they did not say it in episode one in the pilot itself. But, but here it this is. is. This is the genesis for us calling this podcast Those go. Stories Plus. I'm Casey McCall alongside Dan Rydell. Those Stories Plus. One of my favorite kind of like, ah, it just makes you, like, makes you laugh. Yeah. It makes you laugh. And then to end our cold open, we've got, of course, Toby Bennis losing the no-hitter almost immediately after the mention in the promo. The second part to my philosophy on this is you know, the announcer's jinx. There's so, there's uh, this weird, like, like thought and myth about announcer's jinx. So if I say uh, Dwight Howard has made 30 consecutive free throws, he's going to miss the next one, which obviously is a situation that would never happen because Dwight Howard would never make 30 consecutive free throws. But <laughs> this field goal kicker has not missed since uh, September 9th of 
2013, and bam, right then and there, he misses the very next one. And it's, uh, I, I think that it's it's more coincidental than that, right? Th- than anything else. If I say he's got a no hitter through seven innings and he gives up a hit on the next batter, it has very little to do with me or what I've said or what my partner would say or anything like that. For the most part, it's very hard to do most of the things that we reference. Right. So it's hard to throw a no hitter. It's hard to make 30 straight free throws. It's uh, hard to make 25 consecutive field goals as a kicker. So naturally, at some point, it's going to happen. And the reason we tell you these things is so you appreciate how big the miss actually is. So if a guy gives up the hit or if he misses that field goal, you appreciate why it's so impressive that he had this streak going. Right. And we're giving you the context of that situation. So that's why we do those things, even though it might feel like to you that we're trying to jinx your favorite player or your <laughs> kicker or your free throw shooter or your pitcher. I think a lot of it, too, boils down to people getting like just so sucked into the hot hand fallacy. Like Any statistician will tell you each thing, each action is completely independent of yes. any other action. So yeah, he's got 30 free throws in a row, but the 31st one does not depend on those previous 30. Exactly. It's a totally different thing. But people get just embroiled in the moment. You get fired up, you know? So poor Toby Bennis. <laughs> you can blame Probably a little can, squiver yeah. just made it, a little duck snort out there. Yeah, and just a, a no ball more. that had eyes and it, and it made its way out there. You hope that, by the way, it's always a clean base hit. Right. You don't want to have, have to leave it up to the discretion of an official scorer right. in a situation like that. So that leads us to our first commercial break. And we come back and we get right into the main plot point of this episode, which would be the Esquire piece. So some time ago, seemingly... Dan and Casey were both interviewed by Esquire magazine. It is coming out, and Dan knows there's going to be some kind of questionable, or at least something that's going to make the executives at the network a little upset. And he happens to mention in there what? Dana, he belongs to a fly-by-night organization that supports the legalization of marijuana, and he said so in a magazine. Is the network going to be happy about it? No. Is Sachs going to order someone to order someone to slap him in the knuckles? Probably. Interestingly, still, this is... 18 years after the fact, still a huge hot-button topic floating around. It's still prevalent in our minds. And it was the first time I'd actually really heard arguments for the legalization of marijuana. I never really understood uh, what what the actual laws were, and I never really had any reason to think about them. But this was the first time on a television show I'd heard somebody articulate why we should or shouldn't, you know, in some cases should not, and in some cases should legalize it. So it was the first time I'd ever actually heard a political argument about this and it's interesting it took me a long time mm-hmm. you know like i said i started watching this show maybe a decade ago a little less than that and only then did I, I was like oh okay so this is an interesting way to think about things i've got a note here that says that dan makes some pretty good points too <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's not whatever your politics might be he makes some pretty valid points sure. uh while discussing and trying to kind of defend himself just that you know you're wasting not, again not to get political but there's a lot of money being spent prosecuting a surfer versus like a real problem, right? Yes. So little things like that. So he, he seems to not be like adamantly, he's not going to go protesting, but he's got, you know, he's got his little political views. So there's also another thing that will come back and forth. Uh, also a mention or a sense, a notion, if you will, that Casey's not cool. Dan is cool. Casey's, Casey's not, not cool. In the scheme of things, a much larger issue is that I am cool. I'm completely cool. Huh? You dress cool. That's right. Wait, that was a dig, wasn't it? Casey! What, you think it's the clothes? I think it's the haircut. Excuse me? She said she thinks it's the haircut. And I love the way he has to keep feeling like he, he defends himself, you know, whether it's his hair or whether yeah. it's how he dresses or whatever it may be. And I was curious, and we were discussing this a little bit earlier, what your perception is 
of sportscasters that you see on TV in terms of quote unquote their coolness because yeah. you and I have known each other for gosh since you know probably 15 years 16 years now Easily, at this yeah. point and actually probably even longer than that now I think about it we've known each other for a decade and a half and beyond so you've known me since I was 12 13 years old and we were teammates in baseball and things like that so you've known me as a pretty big dork about this stuff <laughs> and a lot of people now only know me from being on television or on the radio or calling their team or whatever it may be and they have their own perception about me so Taking me out of the equation, somebody you know who does this job, what is your perception of people who actually do this job? To me, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's like any person in the public figure, any celebrity, any actor, any musician, whatever. Do you take them as this is them when they put the public life, when you're on air and you're talking and you're behind the camera? Does anything else really matter or is it what's, what's going on right there? And I, as I think about this question, realize I don't know if I've ever really thought back and been like, that's a cool guy. About anybody. I'm, really? You know okay. what I mean? Like, it seems certain people you're never have a personality. You're not, you're not like, thinking, yeah. like, what does this guy do on a Saturday night? Right. Or I'm not frequently wondering, hey, what, you know, I wonder who he's hanging out with afterwards. <laughs> so it's, it's, so it's, a, it's a certain, I think it depends on, and we talked in the, the last episode about how some people, the personality becomes like, oh, you're pale, right? And so, yeah, and you if want it's that someone you see a lot, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And that case, I think you end up being like, yeah, what is he all about? Let me get into his personal life. And now, Versus the show, too, or Sports Night, it's different because you are able to get into someone's head like that. Like, you can be followed on Twitter, and you can, you, you know, you don't stick strictly business when you're sending pictures or tweeting this or that, right? Yes. So your personality comes across a lot more. That's a little bit more where you would get that, I think, versus just the time on air. I have, to, and I have thought about that significantly. With the, with the advent of things like Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and things I'm all on and I use relatively frequently, a lot of people feel like they probably know me a little bit better than they actually do. Right. Because I, I do put a lot of stuff out there on Twitter. I do like tweeting about various subjects. And, and a lot of it is just making fun of myself or saying funny things that I think maybe people uh -huh. laugh at or uh, talking about food or you know television or music or whatever. And trying to get them to... to or trying to open myself up to some people. And because of that, I feel like they a lot of people might know me better than they would otherwise yeah. or if this was if i had the same exact job in the same position 10 years ago they wouldn't know me as well as they do in 2016 right. compared to 2006 so i think that makes a difference at this point the people who are seeing dan and casey on tv they just know him oh yeah that's right that's the guy on the tv it's sports right night. so they know his their their sense of humor or they'd know i guess like you mentioned casey's hair like they know that thing but they wouldn't know like oh he went home and listened to this song or or went to that show last night or whatever. So it's a little, it's different. And I think that's important too, that this is a magazine article when that was really kind of one of the only ways you could You'd get, actually get exposure to right. people like that. And, and you don't, I don't feel like I get that as much. I still feel like we get that on the internet with various websites. I remember Mike Breen, who's the top NBA announcer for ESPN. They did a great story on him, great profile of him for, uh, in the ringer. Uh, Joe Buck, who is maybe the most polarizing network television yeah. broadcaster today had uh like this long podcast on barstool and had uh, a profile written on him and on some website as well and it gave you a lot of insight into how he thinks about these particular things because joe buck is kind of a celebrity broadcaster right. al michaels is probably considered a celebrity broadcaster most of us are not that so our our connection to fans is through twitter or instagram right. or snapchat or facebook or whatever and that's how they get to know us a little bit and on that 
point, actually. I was wondering, because as we mentioned at the top of the show, I'm not super active in the Twitterverse. Is that what people call it? The is Twitterverse? It, did they still call it that in 2006? Did they ever call it that? The kids. The kids. The kids these days. But part of me was just thinking, like, oh, well, they must think you're cool or they wouldn't be following you. But then I also know there's a lot of not-so-nice people out there that would still maybe follow you even if they don't think you're cool. So <laughs> I, I think, wonder, I, I like, think there's some people that get hate following. Yeah, right. Like, I don't oh, doubt that. This idiot here, what's he talking about? But... I guess that that's a little bit of a uh, a careful balance too of like well obviously, or you know the, logically they wouldn't follow you if they didn't like you but maybe they would follow if you don't like you so it's a little it's questionable what could be going on yeah and it's and again I I do know that it's totally different from somebody in my position who just calls games in comparison to a sports center anchor or somebody on Fox Sports One who's an opinion maker or a radio sh- uh, show host in a local market or something mm-hmm. like that. Those people are, have much, much, much different jobs than I do. They're opinion makers and opinion givers. So naturally, if you put out an opinion, you're opening yourself right. up to have other people dispute that opinion. And that's your job oftentimes is uh, if you're in one of those positions. For me, it's not really that. So when I throw an opinion out, it really is my own right. thought and my true thought about what's going on. It's not necessarily for a show or for my job. It's because I really feel strongly about something at that point. So as we talk more about this Esquire article, it's pretty obvious that Luther Sachs, this is, I think, the first mention of Luther Sachs by name, um, who's the CEO of the Continental Sports Channel, he's going to be mad. He's going to be very mad at Dan, it sounds like. Um, A couple people, Elliot, and then later Dana, and then Natalie also. You mentioned it before, too, Casey's hair not being cool. But I made a note that his hair in episode two is leaps and bounds better than in in episode one. He had a huge, sweeping, almost Commodore-esque, like very boy band-esque haircut in the first one. And it's very, very tight. And ironically, it it looks like a lot of what I see now, the side part has made its way back into, uh, into style for men. And it looks like... Casey is full on side parting starting in episode two. Poor Casey. I mean, he's got. I think he looks. <laughs> he was. Back. He was ahead yeah. of his time, frankly. Right. Yeah. If only, if you know, if only uh, the characters could see that this is the style now in fifteen or sixteen exactly. years. Oh, but we go into the uh, talk about now the next kind of plot point. Jeremy is going to do his first cut. He's going to make a, an edit of the Cubs Marlins highlight. It's a day game. Well, obviously at Wrigley, he's got extra time to do it. This is another thing that makes me wonder about the character of Jeremy, where he's clearly incredibly knowledgeable about sports, about statistics, but he's never done this kind of edit before. So I wonder, what was his job before this? Like, he must have just been that data analysis. He must have just been the numbers guy. He was a a numbers and research guy who's quelling together different pieces of information and trying to organize it in a fashion that makes sense for whoever needs to use that information. And this is a completely different job. When you're in a newsroom, whether it's in in radio or television... Uh, associate producer and research analyst and uh, and like basically production assistant all are somewhat different things but all have very similar capacities so you really if you're if you're an associate producer you're not necessarily going to cut tape right because oftentimes it's production assistants who are doing that but you'll go in and have to at least help on a highlight because you need to have these three plays so you can add this graphic at the end of it or something along those lines, or you need these three plays to back up the research and the, the cool note that you've come up with. So it's a collaborative effort among a lot of people, and Jeremy's kind of branching into a position that he's not necessarily comfortable in. Yes. So we get Natalie being worried about that, as we know she's got her feelings. I may have certain feelings for Jeremy. Ah. I think it's possible that I have feelings. Okay. I think these feelings could interfere with my judgment as far as his work is concerned. I admire your professionalism. These feelings have been growing inside of me like a rush or a surge. I think this is a little more than I need to know about this. Okay, thanks. Okay. Hey. Hey, you'll be 
be nice to him? Yeah. It's his first time. I know. Be nice. I will. Jeremy is cutting his first highlight tape. Casey's gonna look at it. Good. Yeah, I'd look at it myself, but I have certain feelings. Natalie. Fine. We'll revisit how he does in a couple of uh, minutes in the show about his first edit there. Uh, we then continue with the Dan and Casey discussion, and we're going to get some more of the network execs popping in. We're two episodes in. We've had network guys showing up already twice, and that's yep. a recurring theme throughout the show. The network is worried about the show. It's not doing well enough, or there's going to be some kind of influential negative or positive thing that could be happening in the next couple of episodes. But we've got them talking, and here's something that's worth discussion. As it'll come up later during, the, during that meeting, Dan mentions that it was 11 years ago today that it was the last time that he had used drugs. Which is weird because we get the quote that we did the interview three months ago. So did he know when it was coming out on the date? Or was it good? Like, how, did, how does that happen? That's yeah, something I've like, wondered and over this, and over and over again. Is this one of the things where you just have to like suspend disbelief for, for you know, your 22 right. minutes? And, I, and I, I, it's, it's so funny that we get a chance now to watch all these you know, shows that we watched or that came out, you know, we didn't necessarily watch them at the time, but they came out in the late nineties or almost 20 years ago at this point, And we get to nitpick every right. little, every little bit about them because they're available on Netflix or on Hulu or whatever, uh, medium we're using to watch them. We get to break down every little thing. And, uh, I've, I was listening actually to Josh Molina's podcast, uh, that he does for the West wing mm-hmm. and he and Rishi Keshirway, I hope I'm saying that, uh, Rishi Keshirway, I, I think, think is how it. you say that correctly they were having a really good discussion about uh you know for that time that i'm watching this episode or this tv show or this movie i just want to be entertained so there are certain things that you just kind of suspend disbelief on it's just one little detail but it's one of those details that the problem is with with if we're doing a podcast on a show clearly we're detail oriented about this and we can't get away from stuff like that so that's an it's, it's always been a question of ask like <laughs> what was his wording in the interview did he say oh on uh, that day exactly or did he say 11 years ago today it's like hmm talk about a coincidence so that's pretty interesting we're going to get uh, a little goof too which is again to your point a second ago if i had watched this once on television and then moved past it i would never catch but while isaac comes in to yell at Dan to come to the meeting, you can see Robert Guillaume standing, waiting to come in on his cue. Just standing just in the background. Just for like a split second. Like, oh, he's waiting to come in. And then that's that's a little one of those, like, oh, took me right out of it the 32nd time I'd seen it. Yeah, yeah. See <laughs> yeah it did, doesn't right. affect you time one. I'm allowed to look like... in that corner during this scene because yeah. I know what's happening over exactly, here. Exactly, yeah. So they go on in, uh, to the meeting, and the big point here is that we've got the lawyers from CSC telling Dan, you have to apologize. How do we fix this? Luther Sachs suggests an apology. An apology? He suggests you take a moment tonight during your broadcast. He wants an on-air apology? He's suggesting... To whom? To you. He's suggesting to you. To whom does he want me to apologize? To your viewers. What did I do to my viewers? The ones who may have read this and misinterpreted. No, Luther Sachs misinterpreted. Luther Sachs is the CEO of a very large company. Well, thank him for his suggestion, but tell him I'm going to respectfully pass. Apparently, Dan has become this laughing stock. Howard Stern spent 15 minutes making fun of Dan this morning. He said he gave new meaning to the word highlights. Ha, 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 ha. Man, that is some solid, solid marijuana yeah. humor right That's there. That's why part of me wonders also, like, Stern? I feel like, if anything, Stern would be kind of pro-legalization. I don't know enough about his politics. But... Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't you guess, based on, based on the type of radio show he's had in right. the past and a, and a relatively liberal stance on most things. So. Yes. Uh, by the way, so this is, I mean, this, the show started in 1998, so we can kind of safely assume that it's set in 1998. And I just think it's funny because only, what, two or three years prior is when Howard Stern's 
like biopic came out the the oh, private private parts, private parts yeah. came out maybe even a year before this came out so i feel like that was peak stern right that was peak stern in his terrestrial radio days this is when you don't want stern you, talking you bad d- about if, you. if stern right. is talking about you this is clear like just for the context of this if you've never seen this show before like this was peak howard stern so you don't want him right uh you don't want to be on his rundown that morning and if you are mentioned you you're noteworthy yes he must, exactly he wouldn't yeah. be spending 15 minutes unless this was something to worry about which i think maybe it also kind of gives you a sense of how famous these guys might actually sort of be right you know you still don't really have a sense of how famous they're supposed to be and obviously when you're writing the shows aaron sorkin can make them as famous or not famous as he wants mm-hmm. but clearly he's making these guys out to have some kind of uh gravitas when it comes to celebrity status right. in some way they're getting interviewed in esquire they're getting talked about on howard stern like these are these are big guys those are, those are, yeah. and those and again today those typically don't happen very often you have to be a broadcaster of a certain status to be included in things like that Dan has potentially violated his morals clause, which is something interesting. <laughs> I don't it's know if I contract. have a morals clause. I was going to ask, way, like, is contract. that something that's I'm not sure. like, hmm. And he just simply said, apparently, that he's a member of this organization, but they're very upset. We've got a, a Sorkinism coming in. I'm going to try and note these as they come. Dan says he wants to raise the level of debate, which is a yes. line that comes up, I think, in every Sorkin show yes. at some point. We're going to raise the level of debate. And that definitely shows up in the West Wing. It certainly shows up in the newsroom. Yep. I more or less probably shows up in a movie or two somewhere too, but he's going to raise the level of debate because I'm a celebrity. I have a, I have people able to listen to my opinions. Let's get them talking about it and learning. Discussion is good. And for those of us fortunate enough to be the subject of magazine articles, it may be our responsibility from time to time to try and raise the level of debate. And it, and it is one of those first, uh, I know there's a criticism of preachiness when it comes to Aaron Sorkin sh- television shows. Mm-hmm. And this, this is kind of a taste of that, and I don't mind it. I, I certainly don't mind it, and, and maybe it's because some of my political views or leanings on certain things probably line up with uh, with what Aaron Sorkin and some of his characters feel. But I do, uh, I do notice that it is kind of getting up on the soapbox and on the pedestal and giving giving people uh, what they you know kind of what they should be thinking right. rather than what they do think. Isaac convinces Danny, you need to apologize. I don't care who. He says it doesn't matter. Just do it so that we can move on because that's how it's done. And this is a great little. Shows the relationship. Isaac's very... He's like a father figure yep. to a certain degree. He even says, you know I love you, right? Before he gets into it. But Dan compares himself to Rosa Parks. It was That's how it was done before a, a woman decided she didn't want to sit in the back. You think I should apologize? No. But you're going to anyway. Why? Because this is television and this is how it's done. Yeah, well, sitting in the back of the bus was how it was done until a 42-year-old lady moved up front. I'm not very impressed with how things are done, Isaac. Be that as it may. We'll do it tonight. That's all. We're done. And Isaac's got that great line about how no rich white man has ever, ever earned <laughs> any respect with me. by comparing himself to Rosa Parks. I love that little stinger. Like, these guys are just open with each other. They've got this close relationship. You can already kind of tell right there. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Apologize. To who? Who cares? Danny? Yeah? You know I love you, don't you? Yeah. And because I love you, I can say this. No rich young white guy has ever gotten anywhere with me comparing himself to Rosa Parks. Got it? Yes, sir. Good. And so that leads us into a commercial break. And we come back to find out that Jeremy's tape is brutal. Or maybe cinematically very good. So, yeah, for what it, what it aesthetically pleasing for, for a miniseries, as uh, Casey chides him on. 
Very much yes. so. I guess the uh, one note that I would have for you would be about length. Yes? Yeah. Usually we get uh, 30 to 40 seconds for each game. A little bit more if it's a game chock full of spectacular plays and or playoff consequences, and uh, a little bit less if it goes the other way. But 30 to 40 seconds is usually the rule of thumb. I see. And how long did mine run? Eight and a half minutes. <laughs> ah. And I thought about this because, again, the, the setting of, of this show is 1998. I went back and like looked at the Cubs and Marlins rosters. Yeah, who would we be seeing? In and, this again, and again, think about this. The 1997 Florida Marlins were the World Series yeah. champions, and the Marlins have had this tendency to win a World Series and then sell off all their pieces. So a year after winning the World Series, the Marlins went 54 and 108. Oh my god. And the Cubs in 1998 was that was a big year for them because that was the debut of Kerry Wood mm-hmm. and that was the summer of Sammy Sosa and Mark the McGuire. The rivalry going the, on. It, it was a great year so I, I remember names like Henry Rodriguez and Sosa and Derek White and Kerry Wood and Steve Traxel and Jeremy Gonzalez. So it's, it's safe, just funny it's to, safe to, to see. It's safe to say that names. the Cubs just dominated that game. That was yeah, <laughs> like, I'm assuming I I assume there has to be some kind of dominance that particular game a day game at Wrigley between the Cubs and Marlins oh yeah so we've got uh eight and a half minute tape that needs to get cut down to about 30 seconds and uh it's interesting to see Jeremy who's clearly very passionate about sports he's talking about the storm clouds gathering he's nothing I love Casey says uh when looking for highlights finding the word routine is a good thing to cut out but he says there's nothing routine about it and throws all these statistics out really shows how passionate he is how much he loves sports in a very particular very nerdy kind of way and i think you were saying this too we're still trying to figure out his background Mm -hmm. and it feels like he's got a print background and a writing background and a re and a research-based background because he's giving so much context and and that's really important you know i've always said the that context is the most important word for any broadcaster use it use it use it often use it as much as you can right and use it efficiently and he clearly wants to give the context to everything. Yeah. That's the problem. It's a very, yeah. it's a very show don't tell kind of uh, highlight reel where he's talking about he he taps his spikes with his bat and spits four times, and Jeremy says, "Well, he's he's breaking the rhythm. He's doing, you know, he's showing you these things yes. instead of just mentioning like, oh, you know." So he's very definitely probably a print background, definitely thinking, "How can I tell this story as best as I can?" Which is interesting. And I started wondering too. I'm, I've watched this a lot, as you can tell, and as you know, and I'm trying to figure out like exact timelines of what's going on here. It's probably late fall or early fall i think in an episode or two it's going to specifically be october yes so it's interesting to see like are they accurate with what games they would be covering like what games are happening what's being played at this point in time so keeping an eye out for that i think that's that's cool to see we get into a tech meeting where we get some info that natalie's trying to hook up dana and casey we're getting right into that kind of romantic story and then we get a little more character development from dana here where she walks in and just like uh, just give me this, that, and that, and done. And she just chops that thing down. That, and that's such, a, that's such a producer thing. Yep. I need this, this, and this. These are the three most important things, and we have to go. We have to move on after that. She knows exactly what she needs. She knows what's going to make for a good clip from that game. <laughs> Again, probably just a lot of the Cubs just beating the crap out of the Marlins. <laughs> of course, yeah. And so we don't need to spend a ton of time on, on that blowout game. We get that first moment of kind of flirtation between Dana and Casey. Casey. Yeah. Give spoons. I'm sorry? Do you have spoons and a fork? Do I have spoons and a fork? To eat with? Yeah, I know what they're for. I, I just thought, because you've only been in the new apartment a couple of weeks, and with these hours, I thought maybe you haven't oh, no, had no, a no, chance. Oh, no, 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 I've bought myself spoons and a fork. Good. Yeah. Good. Okay, well, I got a... You got a whisk? A whisk? Yes. That's the thing you, uh... uh for scrambled eggs, you, you stir it really fast in a bowl. I can't just use the fork? Truthfully, yes. I got a good change. Yeah. Great little details, little 
very convincing, awkward, are you flirting with me kind of conversation going on here. And it's it's very strong, I think, with that. Did your wife ever ask you about spoons or whisks at um, any point while you were dating or now married? We, I don't recall ever discussing specifically whisks or spoons, but we had that problem, probably the opposite of Casey, where suddenly you're combining two sets of silverware and you're like, we got <laughs> 72 forks. Yeah. What do we need with should all we, these? Should we consolidate the forks? Right. Do we need all these forks? It becomes one of those. What do we do with all these forks? It's one of those things you don't really think about until you got a lot of them. Just like Casey probably didn't really think about, well, now I, Lisa's got my silverware, but Danny tries to swoop in there. It's a very valid, I think that's a fine kind of icebreaker for her. Like, oh, you've only been there a couple of weeks. It's maybe a little detail. I get yelled at by, by various people, women uh, in my life who will see my apartment and I, I, I so I'm a, a, a basically live a very bacheloresque life. I live in a nice apartment with no, so <laughs> like I use plastic forks all the time cause I'm totally lazy. I barely ever cook anything. I eat out a lot and I'm on the road constantly. So like, it's just funny to me to like, see, here's some of these problems that, that Casey's dealing with. Like, do I need forks? Cause I've had those exact conversations with myself. Like, I should probably get forks. And then you'll go out and get forks and then forget to get spoons or knives or a whisk or a bowl. And then you're like, I should probably just make a list. Hey, that's a great idea. Let me make a list of things I should get. And then I'll go out and get all of the things. And then I'll bring them back into my abode. We get um, into the show then. They get back on air and things are going. Um, And then we get into the serious stuff as we're going to give that 30 or 45 seconds for Dan's speech. Uh, We get a little more background on him as well. I like getting these little details as we go. As he gives his story, he says, I have a younger brother named Sam. Sam's a genius. I mean, literally. As a kid, he tested off the charts. The first computer I ever had, he built from a kid he bought with money he earned tutoring other kids in math. And there's no doubt that he'd be living a great life right now, except for that he's dead. The day I went off to college was the day that Sam got his driver's license. And he celebrated by taking a drive with some of his friends. Drunk and high as a paper kite. He never saw the red light that he ran. And he probably never saw the 18-wheel truck that put him into the side of a brick bank either. That was 11 years ago tonight. And I just wanted to say, I'm sorry, Sam. I think it's fantastically delivered by Josh Charles as Very he gives well. that speech. And it just is, it's emotional. And that gives us the clue of, well, how did you know the exact date? The CSC lawyers earlier said... That's a sign of addiction. If you remember a date so specifically, but now we know why he remembered that date, because it was the day his brother died. That was the last time he used it. So we get that very powerful message. Dan said, or earlier Isaac had told Dan, I don't care who you apologize to, just, just do apologize, it. And he yeah. chose, I'm going to apologize to my brother, to my dead brother, because it was you know, my fault. Yeah, it, was a, it was a tremendously well-written speech. And this, this is the first true Aaron Sorkin monologue-esque thing I think we really yes. see from, you know, for those of you who are fans of later shows and things like that, or maybe haven't really learned uh, what, what the rhythms were like early, with early Aaron Sorkin, this is one of those first true monologues that you watch and go, wow, that was well thought out, and it had a lot of different angles to it, and it was very, you know, there was a very personal meaning to it, and, and you really understand why this is such a major role and how Dan feels with his, you know, so, so he supports this group, but clearly he doesn't support the usage in right. certain capacities of it. And and that's a that's something that not a lot of people... Yeah, that's a complex can, character, It's a right. very complex yes. character. Not a lot of people can always put those two concepts together, 
confidently and say, well, if you, no, if you feel one way, you should act right. only this way. Or if you've seen one, one thing, you should only lean towards that side of it. And it's a really, really complex moment. And, a, and the duality of it is fantastic. Yeah, he's able to see shades of gray. He knows my experience was my experience, but it's not necessarily, you know, rule with an iron fist on this stuff. And I, and I feel like context, get, you know, I keep using that word. I'll use that word a lot anytime I talk about, uh, about things like this. I, I just think it's so important. We live in such a small, uh, a, a small thought universe now. It's mm-hmm. 140 characters at a time. Uh, I feel like we suffer with that sometimes. We only look at headlines. You know, we, we only see clickbait when we see an, an interesting headline, and naturally we want to we want to just assume as much as we can based off the 10 words or the 140 characters that we see in a tweet or on a website. And we fail, I think, especially in this climate with a lot of crazy stuff happening here and abroad. I feel like we don't look for the context enough. We, we don't try to get all the facts. We right. don't try to see it from all the sides. And I just think it's interesting because he, here in this moment, he delivers so much in such a small amount of time, so much context, and we learn so much about one person as, just because we listen to him for two minutes. Right. Just because we get to, we don't just say, oh, what's your stance? All right, forget you. You get to know, well, why is that your stance? Yes, exactly. Good. And it's again, and credit to Sorkin as a writer here, it's not just like a one-off. It'll come up again, not to get too ahead of ourselves, in season two with his dad. They've got kind of a shaky relationship. You can assume somewhat ties back into this. Yes. So, like, it all built. It's there and it's permanent. It's not just some detail, like, uh, like in a normal sitcom where, like, you know, things always... No matter what happened in episode two, episode three is going to forget about that. So it plays. It stays there. Yeah, and I think, I, I think the best writers are good at that. They're, they plant ideas right. and let them grow as a series or, or a season goes on. Right. So a little more uh, background about Dan is revealed, too, because I'm really digging into the nitty-gritty here. So he says, it was 11 years ago today. It was when he went off to college. It was the day he went off to college and the day Sam got his license. So we can assume then that Dan was, what, 17, 18 years old? Sure. It was 11 years ago. So he's about 28, 29 at this point. So he's a very young guy for doing what he's doing, yeah. which, again, is something I relate to because I'm 29. You're 29, right. And I, and, I, and I relate to that very much, being a young guy in a big position like that. I, I'm trying to imagine myself having to, to, at 29 years old, you're not even 30 yet, and you're expected to give a very uh, detailed account of yourself for a major magazine like Esquire, which I believe you are a, I am a subscriber, subscriber to, sitting on the coffee table that we're recording this on. There it is. Yeah, it's got Lieb Schreiber. Lieb Schreiber staring us down. By the way, I just watched uh, Spotlight. Last night for the first time. I thought he was great in that movie. He was fantastic. He's very quiet. He's very not his typical character. Very subtle. Very yes. subtle as Marty Baron, the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, the Boston Globe at the time of, uh, of that the movie is set. But I can't imagine being in a position to have to deliver an interview like that where right. all these people are going to see it. I mean, that'd be the equivalent of like maybe going on a late-night talk show yeah. or something along those lines today, and you're not even 30 years old, and all you do is talk about sports, and now they want you to talk about yeah, a lot of different things. Let's hear about things. you. Let's hear about your opinions on X, Y, and Z. And again, that goes. we have to keep the time frame in mind. Magazine subscriptions have been hurting in recent years. Everything's online. You're scamming through. You might see a headline and move on. This is a time when that's a story. People are going to read that. People yeah. are going to think about it. It's, so it's, it's pre-internet as we know it. So right. it's still the internet, is, it, it exists. It, it plays a role in the, in the show as well. But this is pre-internet as we truly know it today. Oh, yeah. So we've got Dan being 27 through 29, roughly. Casey, they've been together, or at least they've known each other for a long time. 
at least 10 years, roughly, right? The, the whole time that he's been with, that uh, Casey had been with Lisa. Try to figure out Casey's age. I always placed him mid-30s or so. A little older. A little older, A little yes. wiser, maybe. But they've been partners for a long time. They've grown up in, in the game together, at least. We know that they've been in a couple of different cities together. Uh, so, trying to get that bearings on where these guys are. It's weird to me to think that the character of Dan is only, he's our age. Yes. When I look at the show and I picture him being... In his 30s. Older, in, yeah. yeah in like, his oh, mid-30s, probably. A, a, a crafty veteran of the sports media yeah. landscape at this He's point. He's that good. And it's also one of those, like, again, I think last episode I mentioned Friends, too, but, like, they're, like, 25 at the beginning of that show, and watching that and being older than them now is, like, whoa. Like, it's just a strange... It's, it is. It, you I always view them in the times capsule as always, them being older. You always do, and, and that perception of it is so interesting to me, too. I, I could not really fathom Dan being 29 when yeah. I first watched this. No way. So that... More or less wraps it up. We go to a commercial break after, or the the show within a show goes to a commercial break, and it's quiet, and no one's really saying much, and then we get that great moment showing the friendship of Casey jumping back into the, let me talk about me being cool, like right back into kind of, hey, I'm going to make you laugh. I know that wasn't tense, and they start to talk about... Can I just say one more thing about the Starland vocal band? Sure. 1978, they win the Grammy for Best New Artist. You know who they beat? Elvis Costello. Now, is it your belief that Elvis Costello isn't cool? No, it's my belief that the Grammy voters aren't cool. No, they don't. Hey, I've been trying to tell Who you. Who else Chris? isn't cool that I thought was cool? Is Nicholson cool? Oh, yeah, Nicholson's cool. J.D. Sound? Yes. Muppets? Yes, but not It's a subtle distinction. You gotta feel it. Sam Fear, master of the camera. Very, very cool. Really? Yes. Yeah. The Starland Vocal Band, and I've got some notes about this, too, because I really dug in deep. So, he says that in 1978, they won the Best New Artist, and they beat Elvis Costello. Is that is Elvis Costello not cool? And they get into a discussion of what is cool. Interesting fact, they did not win Best New Artist in 1978. They won in 77. Wow, so, the, so a little bit of a... Yeah, so a little... A, a little bit a little of a untrue. miscue here in the, in, in the writing. Right, Debbie Boone won in 1978. And then another little fact, uh, Taffy Danoff from the Starland Vocal Band, he said that... <laughs> That's the, a person I want to know him. I want to get to know his opinions, and he's right here. He says that the, the Best New Artist Grammy is the kiss of death, because a lot of people who get it don't have a really terrific career afterwards. And we get a little Afternoon Delight playing as we uh, wrap up the episode and things go down. Nope. I also made a little note. <laughs> the other things they discuss is what's cool, what's not cool. Dan's kind of approving or disapproving of Casey's list. He says, Jack Nicholson, cool. J.D. Salinger, cool. The Muppets, cool, but only Kermit is what he says. And then we get our first mention of Zamfir, who's going to come back up. The master, <laughs> master of the, the pan, pan flute. flute. Zamfir. So which another... I didn't know. I, I, I remember when I first heard that reference, and I thought, who the hell is Zamfir? This is a real person. I didn't think it was a real thing. And then I typed in master of the pan <laughs> flute, and sure enough, it came up. Z-A-M-F-I-R, George Zamfir. There you go is a Romanian pan flute musician and supposedly the master of said instrument. And we, we, I don't think we get to hear uh, Dan's reaction as to whether or not he thinks he's cool, but I think he's cool. Come on. Uh, if, you're, if you're known as the master of anything, particularly an instrument, I, I, I mean, I guess not a lot of people play the pan flute. It's not like he's being called the master of the electric guitar, <laughs> but he's got to be cool. He's got to at least be uh, okay. You're cool. I mean, cool is in the eye of the beholder, right. I guess. Fair enough. Did you ever, like, I always, you know, it's, it's interesting. I never knew what cool really was. And I feel like I'm cool now, and I didn't feel like I was cool until, like, two years ago. I feel like I'm getting less and less cool. You think you're getting less cool? Well, in my, I get, as a teacher, where I'm surrounded by 
like the tastemakers now. I teach juniors, so they're all 16, 17 years old. Oh, okay. I have no idea. That's got to be a kill to your it's ego. Those, That's got to be a major hit I, to your I, ego. I pull a Principal Skinner out a lot where I say, like, am I out of touch? No, it's the children it's that the are wrong. <laughs> I use that a lot. I'm like, what are you it's even It's the children that are wrong. I feel like I am becoming less and less cool only because the people who determine what cool is, the key demo, I don't, I'm way off the you're same all, page. You're off the I've, I, because you and I have jobs where we hang around a lot of younger people. Yeah. And, and for me, specifically, it's when I cover college sports. I'm around 17 to 24 year olds pretty often. And then covering pro sports, you know, you deal with people that are generally a little bit older. But I feel like it keeps, it, 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 it does a good enough job of keeping me kind of in tune with what yeah. college kids listen to. It, I, a lot of this is strictly based on music, That's, I feel like. I'll, I hear it, I see it. I don't know if I like it, but I'm aware of it, I think. I feel like most of this will, always, like, music will be the biggest deciding factor as to what demo you are in. Yes. Do you still, are you still holding, like, how much longer am I going to listen to Drake? Or how much longer is Drake still going to be relevant enough for a 17-year-old to right. listen to? I had the thought the other day about Eminem. I was a huge Eminem, I still am. Eminem was a fantastic rapper. Does a 16-year-old know who Eminem I, really is? <laughs> Probably, it, that's an interesting, that's a really great question, actually. Because he was, when we were in, like, junior high, through early high school, like, the biggest thing in the world yes. at that point. And I remember you actually on stage at the House of Blues <laughs> on a field trip, rapping along to, well, I was forgot about Dre. Just forgot about Dre. But I remember that vividly, where the band started playing with you, and everyone was like, ah, this is great. It was, it was, a, actually, that was, that's a moment I wish I had on tape. That would have been awesome. I wish I had on tape. I swear to you, and Steve, Steve can vouch for it, we went on a field trip to the House of Blues, and I was myself and somebody else, and I can't remember for the life of me, who got, we were just on stage with the house band yep. at the House of Blues. And I was like, do you know, do you know Eminem? And the guy starts playing the, the, the bump, 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 bump. Yep. So he starts playing that, and I, st- and I knew the, all the lyrics. And I think you did. You and I were the two people I knew that knew yep. all the lyrics to that song. <laughs> and I went off for like at least a verse Without swearing, surprisingly enough, which I was pretty pleased about. You did but a great job. We, we went through the whole thing. I remember that moment probably most vividly <laughs> from any moment of our of our tenure as friends, knowing each other and, and being around each other. That's the moment that sticks out because it was like, oh my god, and it was great. But I don't know if like if if we had a freshman class go to the House of Blues today and they started playing Eminem, they'd probably stare at him like, what are you doing? Like, what what is that? I don't. I just don't think a 15, 16, 17-year-old is really going to have the same grasp of what Eminem is. And they, I, th- I feel like that 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 marks the beginning of the yeah, end for, for us as somewhat cool human beings. Yes. I'll ask you this question. Do you think Casey is cool? At this point, in knowing him, and I, this is a hard part for me with this podcast, yeah. is not thinking ahead not to trying, what we Not trying to know. think ahead. I don't. You I don't, don't think Casey's cool. Right. I, I don't. I'm, I think Dan is super cool. <laughs> I think he's he, he's he's wake. I'm I'm amongst the masses who doesn't think Dan is really or not, that that thinks Dan is cooler than Casey. I will agree with that. It's just the personality, the air that's going on. Dan is very relaxed. He's very like casual about things. Casey's not. He's not. Yeah. So. But uh, but I, I do think this is a great. Like I said, it's a great episode. The the speech at the end uh, is tremendously delivered by Josh Charles, and I think it's the first true sign of what you see from Aaron Sorkin as a monologue writer, a guy who can really bring you in and make it a memorable segment of a show or a movie with how an actor delivers a long speech. Definitely. And I think it's starting to take the shape of what a lot of Sports Night will be like and a lot of other Sorkin stuff too, where you get hit with the laughs early, you get the serious storyline, but it doesn't necessarily come to a head until later on or until there's a moment. There's going to be something where that's going to come up to play and it's going to be 
worth remembering. Like, oh yeah, or finding out. Or like, you get a little hint of something and then you're just waiting for that to expand. And waiting for it to, to inform you, which it does with that great speech at the end. So we've discovered a lot about Casey in episode one. Yeah. We've discovered a lot about Dan in episode two. And when we get a chance to move on to episode three, we will learn a ton of background and history about Jeremy Goodwin, played by Joshua Molina. Definitely. One of, I think, thinking about it as a whole, one of my favorite episodes of, of season one coming up. Agreed. Like I, I think vi- so, too. It's another one. It's got uh, the funny. It's got the, the drama also thrown in there. It's a good one. So I'm looking forward to talking about the episode three. So, again, you can follow us on Twitter at Those Stories Pod. You can also follow us on Instagram at Those Stories Pod. You can email us at Those Stories Pod at gmail.com. And it's Those Stories Pod.weebly.com for the website. You can follow me at Adam Amin. You can follow Steve at SJCIM. Yeah, so don't be, uh, don't be afraid to send out some thoughts or questions or get involved. And we'll see you next time on uh, Those Stories Plus.